start by reading the preaching text. If you'd open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 5, we look at uh, verses 13 to 15 this morning. Then I'll put it into context for us. So as you're finding your place, Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 to 15, would you please stand? This is the word of God. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord, and now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. The word of God. I'm going to pray again as we get into today's message. Lord, this is your word, and we see here your servant falling before the commander of the Lord's army. May we, with Joshua, fall before the commander of the Lord's army and ask the question, what does my Lord say to his servants? Be with us now as we explore this text. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. It's very helpful if we understand the context of this passage. These are just three verses, uh, climactic in, in one sense, uh, really climactic for the Torah, even though we're into the book of Joshua. This is the moment that we've been waiting for throughout the first five books of the Bible. That is, in Genesis 12, God promised Abraham some land. Now, finally, Israel is at the edge of the land, and they're about to enter into the land. And that's why the commander of the Lord's army says, now, as in, finally, this is the time. This is the appointed time. I have come. So the context is, let's look at the broad context of the Torah, and then, briefly or more specifically in the book of Joshua, uh, God's people, though they had been promised this land, were enslaved in Egypt for more than four centuries. Finally, God heard their cries and sent Moses to liberate them out of slavery. We know that uh, God did this through ten plagues. The tenth plague was the death of the firstborn, and God commanded that they uh, share a Passover, that is to, to take the blood of a lamb and put it over the doorposts and the lintels of their homes so that when the, the wrath of God came through uh, Egypt, he would pass over their houses and no one would die in the house where the blood of the lamb was smeared. And so that broke Pharaoh. And Pharaoh let God's people go. Moses led them out of Egypt through the baptism of the Red Sea to Sinai, where they entered into covenant with God. After that, they, they wandered in the wilderness. It was supposed to be about two weeks' journey from Sinai to the promised land. But we know, and this will come into play in this text, 
uh, we know that Moses, by God's command, sent 12 spies into the land. And 10 said, the people are too big. The, the cities are, are too strong, too, much, too fortified. We cannot take the land. So God punished the people because the people listened to the 10 spies. It was just Joshua and Caleb who said, no, we can take the land. God has promised us the land. Let's take the land. But the people didn't listen to the two. They listened to the ten. So Israel is in the wilderness for 40 years. And now they're ready to enter into the promised land. And that's where we pick up the book of Joshua. And the book of Joshua starts with high anxiety. We know what happened when Moses sent in spies. But at the very beginning of the book of Joshua, Joshua, who takes over for Moses as the leader of God's people, uh, Joshua sends in two spies. Now, he, he made it for better odds, right? Don't send in ten. Too many people can come back and say we can't take the land. Send in two. Two thought we could take it before. Maybe two will believe that we can take it this time. And that's exactly what happens. They come back and they say, it's a good land. A land flowing with milk and honey. And, and yes, they're fortified. And yes, they're strong. But they, people are melting in fear because of us. And so uh, Joshua leads the people after this good report. And they cross through the Jordan River. They set up memorial stones to remember this moment. This moment when they entered into the promised land. Then the new generation was circumcised to show that they were devoted to God and they celebrated another Passover. So you see here sort of this, the circumcision and the Passover, it kind of combines Abraham and Moses. And they're preparing themselves spiritually to take the land. The last thing before the passage that we read was God ceased giving manna, which meant that they had to go in and take the land and eat the, the fruit and the, and the harvest of the land itself. They can no longer wander in the wilderness. The manna is over. God is no longer providing miraculous food from heaven. He's going to give them the food of the land. Then we get to our text. This morning what I want us to do is take a look at three observations from this text. The first observation is that Joshua needed encouragement. And just put yourself in Joshua's shoes for a moment. You've experienced the last 40 years. You've seen God do amazing things, but you've also seen the wrath of God. You've seen um, the discipline of God against unfaithfulness and a lack of, uh, of faith and, and a lack of humility and so on. Uh, you know that you're dealing with a group of people you don't know if you can actually corral them to do what God wants them to do. If you're Joshua, how might you be feeling? You might be feeling a little uneasy. You might have a, just a tinge of anxiety, and I believe that he did. So the very first thing that we see is that Joshua needed encouragement. If you just flip back to Joshua chapter 1, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but at the beginning of the book of Joshua, we're told that after Joshua took over, God meets with Joshua and speaks to him. And just look at verse 6. The Lord says, Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. And then again in verse 7, Only be strong, be very courageous. And then God promises that he will be with him as, as he goes to do this this really immense, very difficult mission. Then down in verse 9, have I not commanded you? 
third time, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now, commentators have speculated for a long time, uh, why is God repeating himself three times and then the fourth time saying, don't be afraid, don't be dismayed, I'm with you. Be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid, don't be dismayed, I am with you. At the very beginning of the book of, of Joshua, we're kind of given indication that Joshua might have felt that he wasn't up to the task. He didn't feel strong and courageous. He might have been frightened. He might have been dismayed. He might have wondered or doubted if God was with him. And so at the very beginning of his leadership, God is encouraging him in this way. Now, if, if that is the case, you get to this point, and all of a sudden, you know, if you're an athlete or if you've uh, ever fought for the armed forces, you do all this preparation, but then the day of battle comes. The day of the game comes. Yeah, you have all this preparation. You know what you ought to do. But, but there is this game day feeling that just sets in over you. And, and I imagine this is what's happening with Joshua. Verse 13, chapter 5. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. What's he doing by jo Jericho? Well, he probably has that game day feeling. And he's anxious. The day has arrived. Now is the time. He has to take his people and engage in hand-to-hand -hand combat with the people of Jericho, even though the walls are high. And as he's looking at Jericho, behold, there was a man standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. Now that is a frightful scene. A man, not with a sheathed sword, the sword is out, meaning this man is ready to go to war. And look at Joshua's question to this man. Are you for us? I don't recognize you from among our company. Are you with us or are you with them? And at this moment, Joshua is wondering, has the enemy started the, the war? Is this man here, is he a champion of Jericho perhaps? to begin this war? Or is this a mercenary who has heard of us and he wants to join us? He's not quite sure. Joshua needs encouragement, and so he asks, can you offer me any encouragement, or does the war start now? He doesn't get the answer that he was looking for. This is observation number two. Joshua does not get the encouragement that he is looking for, at least not initially. Verse 14 and he said, that is, this man said, no. No. What, what do you mean, no? It, that wasn't really an option. Are you with us or are you with them? So the answer has to be us or them. That, that's really how Joshua set up the question. Are you with us or them? And, and the, this man says, no. Did you not understand the question? Well, what he's about to say makes the no make sense. He says, no, I am neither for you nor for your enemy. I am for the Lord. I am neither for you or for the enemy. I am for the Lord. I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Now, if you have a good biblical theology, you know that 
the Lord is for Israel. And so you might say, he should have said, yes, I'm for you. But that is not entirely accurate. You see, the commander of the Lord's army is not for Joshua or for Israel's army. The commander of the Lord's army is for the Lord. And the question is not to be posed from Joshua to the, the commander of the Lord's army, are you with us or against us? The question ought to come from the commander of the Lord's army to Joshua. Are you with me or not? Because I am going to go in and take the land. Are you coming? This must have been very encouraging. So although it's not the encouragement he was looking for at the beginning, eventually he gets the encouragement that he wants. The Lord had promised that he would go into the land before us. In Deuteronomy 9, God said to Moses, when you go in to take the land, don't think that you yourselves are going to take it. Don't think that it's your righteousness that gives you a right to the land. Do not for a moment think that you are able on your own to take the land. But I will go ahead of you, and I am a consuming fire. I will take the land, and I will give the land to you. And then we saw in chapter 1, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, don't be afraid, do not be dismayed, I will be with you. So all of these things are lining up for Joshua, and look at what Joshua does. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped him. And he said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Now, when you fall down on your face, it is, that is the posture of fear. It is also the posture of worship, which is instructive for us, isn't it? There's something congruent about fear and worship that when you see how awesome God is, and you have an appropriate fear of Him, and you fall down in an appropriate fear of the Lord, then you are inclined to him with a heart of worship. That's exactly what Joshua does. He falls down in fear, but it's not a fear, at, it's, it's, a, it's an awe-filled fear. It, it's not the kind of fear that, that says, I'm not sure what's going to happen now. He's so thankful that the Lord has showed up. He says, now I'm ready to follow. Uh, but Moments ago, I thought I was going to be leading Israel in this conquest. But now I recognize you are going to do the leading. I am ready to follow. And what does my Lord say to his servant? I'm your servant. And so though Joshua does not get the initial encouragement he's looking for, observation two, he gets better than that. He gets the presence of the commander of the Lord's army. And this brings us to observation three. And this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Who is the commander of the Lord's army? Michael? The angel? Gabriel? The angel? Some other mighty angel? Would that not have been appropriate? Would that not have been enough? If God had sent a warrior angel to Joshua and said, here's a warrior angel. I want you to follow this warrior angel into battle. I, I'm sure that would have been encouragement enough. That also would have been power enough. There are angels able to do such a task, but that's not who this is. That's not who the commander of the Lord's army is. Taking a look at verse 15 now. The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. 
and Joshua did. Who is the commander of the Lord's army? The commander of the Lord's army is the Lord. You see, God does not delegate such an important position. He is the commander of his own army. There is no number two in that sense. He doesn't say, will you be the commander of the army? No, I am God. I am the commander-in-chief of the Lord's army. Now, how, how did I make that, that decision? How did I say, well, this is the Lord? commander of the Lord's army is the Lord. Well, it's what the commander of the Lord's army says to Joshua. Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. Does that ring a bell? It does, doesn't it? Exodus 3. You might want to flip back. Let's just read the first six verses. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why this bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see... God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So you get this very similar posture. How did Moses hide his face? Well, he might have tucked it in his cloak. He might have just fallen flat on the ground and buried his face in the dust. And, and so you see there, take off the sandals from your feet for you're standing on holy ground. Whenever God shows up, the space around God becomes as holy as God is. And, and there's no doubt here that this is God. And, and this is interesting because in verse 2, we're told that it was the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord. So is this not just an angel, a representative angel? Well, no, because of verse 6. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. It also says up in verse 4, when the Lord saw that he had turned to see, God called to him out of the bush. So this is the angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord is the Lord. So whenever you come across the angel of the Lord, you've got to be thinking in bigger terms than just an angel. What we're looking at here in these two instances is what we call a theophany. A theophany. A theophany is a... Uh, an appearance of God in the Old Testament. We have a problem, though. The problem comes from verses like, and just listen to this, jot it down and look at it later. Verses like John 1.18. No one has ever seen God the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So a theophany is the appearance of God in the Old Testament. And then John comes along and says, no one's ever seen God. 
Paul says the same thing. Just give you an example. In 1 Timothy 6, he's talking about the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. That is when the Father, the time has been set by the Father, God the Father. And he says at the proper time, the Father will reveal Jesus Christ. And then Paul says something about God the Father in 1 Timothy 6, verses 15 and 16. He, that is God the Father, who is blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen. Or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So we have a problem. If we're claiming that God makes these appearances in the Old Testament, we call them a theophany, and yet we're told that God has never been seen, nor can he be seen, by two different apostles, and there's other places where that is told, what do we do? Well, we could get around this. I think easily enough, we could say something like this, that Joshua saw a mere vision of God, but he was not actually seeing God. So, this commander of the Lord's army was sort of like a hologram, but it wasn't actually God. Now, the problem with that is, how does a hologram of God make the ground holy? It's a problem. So if there's no substance at all, for lack of a better word, to, to the vision it himself, what is it about that that makes the ground holy? Well, you might say, well, even a vision of God is enough to make the ground holy, perhaps. We could say that Moses, back when he would speak to God, when he said, show me your glory, and the Lord made all of his goodness to pass before Moses, we could say, well, all of the goodness, that's not technically God, that's just his goodness. It's, a, it's sort of like God shouting from up in heaven and saying, look at these things. But there was earthquakes and fires and all these things that, that happened. And I'm not entirely sure that that is happening. But we could use the word like, well, that's the manifestation of God, but it's not the fullness of God. So you're not actually encountering God. And, and, you know, to be honest with you, I don't really know if that's sufficient. Maybe that is sufficient. Maybe, maybe God is just sort of partially giving us little tidbits, little crumbs of himself throughout the Old Testament. But there is another way to approach this. That the theophanies of God in the Old Testament are not of the Father. Because it's very easy to see in 1 Timothy 6 that that's really about the Father. The Father is transcendent. He's above. No one has ever seen him. He dwells in inapproachable light. And, and, and here we have in John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. And, and contextually, he's talking about the Father, not the Son or the Spirit. And then he goes on, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So the question is, and, and this is where Trinitarian theology is important, and also we have to be very careful. Because as much as we can understand about God as one and God as three, that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, the Father is not the Son, Father is not the Spirit, the Son is not the Father, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Son, the Spirit is not the Father, but they are, all three are part of one God. 
as much as we can sort of make every effort to ascend to that, we, we really have difficulty maintaining the unity and the distinction between the three persons of the Trinity. But I wonder, in, in a way that we cannot fully fathom or understand, so I'm about to preach something that I don't fully understand, not that I think that I'm in danger of heresy, but that I, I'm speaking about things that we'll never understand. So we approach them with awe. But is it possible that the second person of the Trinity in both covenants has made the Father known? No one has ever seen God, the Father, if I can add that, but the only God, one who is fully God, who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Now, must we limit that to post-incarnation? Must we limit it to, to the incarnation of the Son of God for this only God who is at the Father's side to have made God known? Or is it possible that the second person of the Trinity, who, that is, the only God who is at the Father's side but is not the Father, has always been making the Father known? In which case, and if that is true then these beautiful theophanies of God in the Old Testament are the pre-incarnate Christ. And with him comes the Father and the Spirit. Because what I don't want to do is to divide the, the triune God apart from himself. So where there is the, the pre-incarnate Christ, there is also the Father and the Spirit. And where the Spirit of God is, there is the Father and the Son. And transcendent with the Father, as John says here, is the Son and the Spirit. And so this is where it becomes impossible to understand how is it that God the Father can be transcendent and unseen, and yet He is present in His unity and union with the pre-incarnate Christ when He reveals the Godhead to us throughout the scriptures. And Jesus himself says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So, so let us recognize this is too glorious for us. And yet at the same time, see that the commander of the Lord's army is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate form. That is before he took on flesh. What I love about this and this is, this is the big idea that we're going to nail down for the moments remaining, is that if you can make this step with me, it takes you into potentially uncomfortable waters in affirming that Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. And my question is, why is that uncomfortable for us? And, and maybe it's not for you, but I think for many... The Father is the God of the Old Testament. Jesus shows up in the New Testament. So the new revelation uh, in the incarnation is that God has a son. We never knew that God had a son. All this time we've been reading through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, all the way through to Malachi, and we just never knew that God had a son. But what if you flipped it the other way around and you come to John's gospel and you say, I never knew that God had a father. That's, that just 
the theological ground shifts a little bit. And this is where people get really unsure, uncomfortable. No, I, I don't know if I want to follow you there. And yet my question is this. If we affirm the fullness of the deity of Jesus Christ, why are we so hesitant to affirm that he is the God of the Old Testament? I don't know why that is. And, and interestingly enough, in my encounter in the broader church, as I've been having this discussion with people, it's oftentimes the same people that are very comfortable emphasizing the divinity of Jesus over the humanity of Jesus, that have trouble affirming that Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. Now, that, just pause for a moment and see the inconsistencies there. We, we love to see sort of the, a, a post incarnation view of Jesus. That is, we recognize that God came as a man to the earth and he came in the flesh and everything that, about us that is human, Jesus shared. We love that. But now, somewhere, whether it's at the resurrection or the ascension, for many of us, Jesus loses his humanity. And he goes back to his pre-incarnate form in our minds, in our popular theology, which is actually not good theology at all. The, the enduring humanity of Jesus is so important. But there are some in the church who wrestle with, and, I, and I'm, I'm patient with this because I, I wrestled with this too at one point, but, but who are, are really wrestling with the enduring humanity of Jesus. And I've found it's the same people that have trouble affirming that Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. So high view of the divinity of Jesus, New Testament, post-incarnation. but struggle to spread that divinity back to eternity past through salvation history in the Old Testament. I don't know, are you tracking with me? Do you see how these are, the only way that I can sort of conceive of why this is, this inconsistency among people that I've talked to exists is because we, we just haven't thought about it. We just haven't created the categories in our thinking to be able to, oh yeah, that's true. I can, if I am affirming the fullness of, of Jesus' humanity, he must still be human. He must still be a man. Oh yeah, if I am affirming that Jesus is fully God, he must be the God of the Old Testament because there's only one God. Now, I think this is important. Um, I should have said it sooner. When I say that Jesus is the God of the Old Testament, I am not for a moment saying that the Father and the Spirit are not the God of the Old Testament. See, the Father is the God of the Old Testament, the Son is the God of the Old Testament, and the Spirit is the God of the Old Testament. And to say that one is the God of the Old Testament at the expense of the other two is blasphemy of the highest order against uh, the Trinity. We believe in one God. So if you really believe that Jesus is fully God, then you can see him in the Old Testament as God. Which means, when God says something in the Old Testament, it's Jesus speaking. When God commands punishment, severe punishment, it's Jesus speaking. When God does bring his wrath, it's Jesus bringing his wrath. And I think in popular theology, unfortunately, what's happened is God has become schizophrenic in our, in our theologizing of him that we have a wrathful father in the Old Testament who's propitiated in the New Testament, which is almost right. 
We have a righteous God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who is propitiated by the Son of God, the person, the man, Jesus Christ, on the cross. But while Jesus hung on the cross, he was also propitiating his own wrath. He himself was angry with the sin of the world. And not for a moment did he disagree with the just punishment of crucifixion for sin. This is really important if we're going to read the Old Testament as Christian scripture to put it all together. I want to read to you Jude. Just again, listen, Jude verse 5. I love how, how Jude does this. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Jude gets it. Jude says, Jesus delivered a people out of Egypt. And then afterward, he destroyed a bunch of people because they didn't believe. According to Jude, Jesus is the God of the Exodus. Jesus is the God of the wilderness wandering. Now, if you go and look at Jude 5, your Bible might say the Lord. There are manuscripts that say the Lord and manuscripts that say Jesus, but there should be a footnote. If, if your Bible says Jesus, there should be a footnote that says some manuscripts say the Lord. And if your Bible says the Lord, some manuscripts will, or your Bible should have a footnote that says some manuscripts say Jesus. But there's early, early manuscript evidence to say that Jude is understanding the things that we are talking about. It means that Jesus is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Interestingly enough, in the New Testament, there is a handful of times where the Father is called the Lord. Most of the time, like much more than 95% of the time, it's God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I won't go through all the translation issues there for you, but basically what's happening is that when you say the Lord Jesus Christ, you are ascribing the divine name Yahweh to Jesus the Messiah. So, so in our Bibles, we, we say all the time, Yahweh, Jesus, Christ. Or to do it all in, in Hebrew, uh, English version of Hebrew, Yahweh, Joshua, the Messiah. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ means. Lord Jesus Christ. Yahweh, Lord. Jesus, Joshua, it's the same name. Christ, Messiah. The Lord Jesus Christ. Yahweh, Joshua, Messiah. And these are, that is a sort of a nice segue into further evidences that the commander of the Lord's army in Joshua 5 is the pre-incarnate Christ. We are told that Joshua, the son of Nun, that is... Moses' successor, leads Israel into the promised land. We're also told in the Bible that Joshua, that is Jesus, the Son of God, will lead all saints into the eternal promised land. Which is just amazing. So let me just sort of sketch this out and this will be the end. We've talked about, in looking for Jesus in the Old Testament, we've talked about type scenes and we've talked about typologies. A type scene is a, is a plot sequence that gets repeated. A typology is 
a blueprint of something. So it could be a person, it could be an item in the tabernacle or the tabernacle itself. So it's, this corresponds to that. What I'm going to say is we can see the theophany here that this commander of the Lord's army is the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is strengthened if we see the accompanying type scene and typology. So we're bringing some things together here. Let me just give this to you. The macro type scene that contextualizes this morning's preaching text. We already talked about it. It's the, the plot of the Torah. God's people were in slavery. God caused, uh, invited them to celebrate the Passover. They passed through the Red Sea. They entered into covenant with God. They wandered in the wilderness, following after God where they were humbled and tested. And then they entered into the promised land, and at their head was Joshua. That's the plot. That is a type scene of the gospel in the Christian life. We are all born as slaves to sin, and so we have a Passover ourselves, which is the Lord Jesus Christ being crucified on the cross. And we take his blood, the blood of the Lamb, and apply it to ourselves. And in so doing, we are liberated from our slavery. And so we join with Israel in their baptism through the Red Sea, and we are baptized as believers, marking our deliverance from slavery. And then we enter into the new covenant with God, or at least we're taught more about it. And for, for the remainder of our life, from the moment we come to faith until uh, we die, we are in the wilderness of this life. And God is testing us, and he is humbling us to see if we will follow him, to see if we'll be satisfied in the bread that comes from heaven, which is Christ, another type. So we're in the wilderness right now, but in the Torah, what happened was this. God sent Joshua to take them into the promised land. That's exactly what's going to happen for us. There is a promise in the Bible that Jesus will return. And when he returns, he's going to lead us into the eternal promised land. Ultimately, the new heavens and the new earth. So the promised land itself is a picture of our eternal state in a resurrected, glorified universe where we dwell with God. And this has been promised to us. Which makes this passage so exciting and so rich. Because you have the antitype, that is, Joshua the son of Nun, who leads Israel's army into the promised land of Canaan, face to face with, uh, sort of, not the antitype, the type, Joshua, face-to-face -face with the antitype, Jesus Christ, the real thing, who will lead all of us into the eternal promised land. So what Joshua, the son of Nun, is about to do with Israel to take Canaan by conquest is precisely what Jesus is going to do for us, leading us into the new heavens and the new earth. And so here we have Joshua face-to-face -face with Joshua. Now, just in case you're wondering, how, how am I making Jesus into Joshua? Joshua is Hebrew. Yeshua, Jeshua, Joshua. The Greek version of Joshua is Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. So it's the same name. Joshua and Joshua. Face to face. Blueprint reality. This is prophetic. That's exactly how our Bibles end. In Revelation 19. Right there, what does the commander of the Lord's army say? 
I am the commander of the Lord's army. Now I have come. You're about to do a dress rehearsal of the end of the age, Joshua. And I've come to lead you in that dress rehearsal. But this dress rehearsal is just in preparation for the real thing. And one day the commander of the Lord's army will return. Revelation 19 verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened. And behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. In righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God. To eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast, the Antichrist, was captured, and with it the false prophet who was in its presence had done all the signs by which those worshipped. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. What happens in Joshua 6 through 24? The conquest of the, of the promised land. Uh, Joshua follows the commander of the Lord's army in battle and takes city after city after city and it's bloody. And the sin of these Amorites, these Canaanites had reached its peak and God visited them in his wrath and his judgment. So it will be at the end of the age. When Yahweh, Joshua, the Messiah, returns to fulfill that prophecy and he takes back the world. And we are the army clothed in fine linen that comes after him. We follow him in. But Jesus will take back the world. So the question is not, are you for us or against us? No. That's not how you pose the question to God. God, are you for me or against me? The question always is, from the commander of the Lord's army to each of us, are you with me? Or against me. Because when I come and unsheathe my sword. I come to do war. When we see that Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. It changes our understanding of who Jesus is. What I have just said is not something that we like to think about. Associating with Jesus. He's the meek and mild lamb. Not the lion of the tribe of Judah. Not the commander of the Lord's army. Not the God of the Old Testament, but he is. Have a high view of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
how does our reading of the Old Testament then change when we remember that Jesus is the God of the Old Testament? Similarly, how does our perception of Christ change when we remember that Jesus is the God of the Old Testament? One God, consistent, the Alpha and the Omega, always the same. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you that you are one God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and there's no division in you. And yet when we speak of you as three, there's no way for us in our limitations to, uh, to speak of you without making it sound as though the Father, the Son, and the Spirit can be distinct. And so Lord, I pray for us that if that has crept uh, into my speech or into our thinking this morning, that you would correct us graciously by your Holy Spirit. But Lord, I do thank you that we must remember that Jesus is the God of the Old Testament and that he appeared to Joshua uh, who was the picture of the one to come. Lord, we thank you that the name Joshua means the Lord saves. And so we fall before you and we put ourselves on your side. Save us so that on that great and terrible day we will be behind you and not against you. We pray this in your name. Amen.